Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 2. Father, thank you for today. And we come humbly to you. We come in dependence upon you to instruct us in your truth, in your ways. Lord, I pray that you'd give me clarity that you give understanding to each of us. And Lord, that you would forge in our lives that application. So Lord, that we would walk out your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. I titled this message, The, the True Child in Faith. Now, it's important to understand when we start a new book, there's some essential or even important questions that we need to ask. Well, who are the people involved and what's the background of this setting? It's important to understand the the culture and the geography and where was the book written and when was it written and who was the author and why did he write this? What are the, the events that took place and how and why? When we begin to ask these questions, we develop the, what we call proper interpretation skills. We learn how to rightly divide that word of truth. Well, when we don't understand it in a historical, grammatical, and cultural way, we find that people come up with different opinions. There should only be one opinion. What was the author's intent? What was the intent that he wanted us to know when this book was written, when he used the people he did, the culture that he did? Well, one of the things that will help you and me in that understanding is is consulting a, a good Bible dictionary, a background commentary. It will help us answer many of those questions, and they will point us back to what the text is saying. Because it's the Word of God that we need to hear. It's the Word of God that's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Well, today we begin a, this new series as we come to First Timothy. And we're calling it the pastoral epistles, which include Titus in First and Second Timothy. Now, these were written to two young pastors who were very dear to the heart of Paul. Now, Apostle Paul writes to to give instruction, to encouragement and wisdom and insight concerning the ministry. In fact, let me read from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 16. You'll see it on the screen behind me. It says, I'm writing these things. See, he explains why he's writing, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how you ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of support of truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who is revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. See, there are personal and yet public and yet there is practical application in this book and and Paul's writing this is the reason I wrote this that you would know how you ought to act in the household of God now what is the household of God well that means that when we 
congregate together. We, we come, that's what believers do, that's what the church does. We congregate together because we want to worship him together. We want to exalt him together. We want to study his word together. We want to praise and we want to take communion and we want to remember what he's done for us. We want to be a light in our communities. So it's personal because God personally speaks to each one of us. Yet it's public that we all can come together. We praise together. We worship together. We hear God speak congregationally to us. But yet there is this personal and practical application, not only for that generation, but every generation to follow. Because this teaches us what was pleasing to God. In fact, when Paul is writing this, he's presenting a a blueprint of the church. And there's two important principles I want to communicate today, and I'd like to share that. And the first one is the importance of right teaching. See, right teaching centers upon godliness. In fact, that word godliness occurs 10 times in this short book. And throughout the rest of Paul's letters, that focus will be grounded in godly behavior found in Christ's gospel. In a nutshell, the, the theme of First Timothy is really is Christ-centered godliness, the sake of the gospel. Now again, one more time, Christ-centered godliness for the sake of the gospel. In fact, let me show you where I find that in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Follow with me, it says, For the goal of our instruction is love, notice from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. This was the goal of his instruction, love from a pure heart, good conscience. That means he has this clean conscience. He knows why they're in sincere faith. In fact, in, in, in Titus chapter 2, 11, 14, again in this series that we're going to see when we get there, for the grace that God has appeared, bringing salvation, notice, to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And notice it says, zealous for good works. So that first point I want to bring is, God has set us apart, and we are to walk in his godliness. We are to be holy as he's holy. That when people see us, they see God in our lives. Well, the second principle I find in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, notice what it says, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with teaching, so that you be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So there's importance in holding fast, clinging to the faithful word. You know the word of God is faithful to lead you into all truth. And when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. It's faithful to wash you and cleanse you, tell you what's right, what's wrong, and how to get right and how to stay right. It's faithful to show you that straight and narrow path that leads to life. It's faithful to show you what is pleasing unto God and how the man of God is to live and that woman of God. 
what a godly marriage is to look like and what the church is to, to look like. And notice what it centers on. Sound doctrine. So that he is able both to exhort sound doctrine, that is healthy doctrine, and to refute those that contradict. Every believer is to know what is sound, healthy doctrine. See, there is doctrine within the churches, the doctrine of demons in many churches. Things that are not right, things that are not honoring and, and pleasing to God. Things that are leading people astray. It's the sound doctrine. Doctrine simply means teaching, teaching what is right. This doctrine is used sometimes to refute and correct people and help people get on that right track. Sometimes it may seem unloving, but you cannot see a brother or sister continue in sin and not say something. That's what we're to correct people with is, is the word of God. We're to go with love. We're to go with a broken and contrite heart. We're to go with them and we bring them the truth of God's word and let the Holy Spirit work within them. Look with me, 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give account for the hope that is in you. Yet, notice how, gentleness and reverence. Say, we're to know the word of God. We're to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within. Do you believe that Jesus is coming again? This is teaching that I need to know those scriptures. I need to understand it. My hope is based upon the fact that God is faithful. He's given us the word. It's proved. It's tested. Jesus has conquered death. And he's coming again. He came as a redeemer, a savior. But he comes as a judge the second time. We're to be able to open that word. We're to be able to explain that, to give a hope that lies within. But what's important is how we do it. Gentleness and reverence or respect. We're not to be arrogant, not to be self-righteous, not to be judgmental, not to be condemning. Character is very important. So you can have all the, the right doctrine and yet lack love. Doctrine is not the mark of a Christian, it's love. See, right doctrine leads you to act gentle, reverent, loving, and kind, and holiness. One other reason Paul wrote was, to help Timothy deal with the, the daily and practical concerns of life in the church, its organization. You know, church would be real easy if you didn't have to deal with people. And we're all people. We all, every one of us have some kind of problem, something going on in our life. And we'll either choose to surrender it to God or do it our way or do it the way the world does. After all, that's what everyone else is doing. But God's way is a different way. And when you get people together, there's problems. They're like porcupines, poking one another, hurting one another, judging one another, because we all grow at different rates. We all have different struggles. We all tempted to sin in the same way, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. 
Some think they're more spiritual than others. They, they know something that the others, or, or they haven't done what they've done, and they judge. The scripture's clear that I, to take the log out of my eye before I take the speck out of someone else's eye. See, that attitude, humbly coming to someone gentle and kind and caring. Paul writes to Timothy to include information on this public worship and the choice and the competence of the the church leaders, what those leaders look like and its servants, the deacons, how the church is to function. It also deals with with things concerning the, the personal life of a pastor, the character. And that's important to understand and see in the, in the scripture here. What's really important in picking leaders is, is godly character. It's not always the gifting he has. It's not important how politically correct he is or how popular he is. Is he walking in godliness and holiness? How does he treat his, his wife, his family? How does he treat others? Does he practice what he preaches? Is he able to open the word and share with people in a gentle, in a reverent way? Well, Paul continually urged Timothy and Titus to, to teach the people well. To teach the people well, that's important to, to be a good minister, was to, to nurture people in the, in the truth of God, the truths of the faith, of good teaching. See, the Bible, again, makes great emphasis on teaching the Word of God and being true to the author's intent. And this is what, again, Titus and First and Second Timothy, this is how a pastor is to bring good, sound, biblical teaching, teaching the Word of God. And sadly, this isn't often done. This is, it, it's teaching how to, to have a good marriage or how to do this. All of those things will be taught when you teach the word of God, when the character of God is being formed in that person of God. See, it was Paul's concern for godliness that governed everything that Paul wrote. Godly behavior of, of the believer is what he urged continually. And this was the purpose of him writing, in fact, in 1 Timothy 6.11. Notice what he writes, but flee from these things, you man of God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, and faith, and love, and perseverance, and gentleness. See, every believer is to pursue righteousness. What is right and pleasing with God? And faith. We're to grow in that, that love and faith of who Jesus Christ, faith in God. Not faith in our faith, but faith in a faithful God, that God has spoken, he's told us what's right and what's pleasing and how we'll be accepted in his sight. Then grow in that, walk in that. Love, love that motivation to, to serve him, to live for him, to abstain from all ungodliness, And that we're to persevere, to be steadfast in our our faith, in our service, and gentleness. 
See, these are the things that, that Paul's instructing. These are the things that are to be instructed from the pulpit into every believer. These are the things that we are to, to walk in. This is what our life is to, to look like. This is when we walk in these things, live in such a way that we are light unto the world, that our lives are different, not, not without sin, not without flaw, but they see that we're growing in that love. And that grace of Jesus Christ they do not even understand. Now, it's impossible to walk in these things without being born again. It's impossible to practice godliness without this constant, consistent balance and intake of God's word. You need God's word each and every day. For me, it's beyond just my studies and preparing to teach the Word of God. It's I need to hear from God personally. I need to hear God intimately speak to me about my own life, my own circumstances, those things that I need to change and how I need to minister to others or maybe even just minister to Him. Being still and know He's God. Learning to listen. To wait upon him, but occupy until he comes. Well, again, look at verse 1. Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, in grace and mercy and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the first thing I want to call your attention to in verse 1 is, is Paul... Notice what it says, apostle of Christ Jesus. And notice it's according to the commandment of God, our Savior in Christ Jesus. You'll notice that Paul doesn't waste any time letting Timothy know that he's the one that's writing the letter. In fact, he was the chosen servant of God and Christ Jesus. See, Paul opens with his name. And I love it. His name here means little. It's not so much maybe about his physical and why that may be true. Every servant of God needs to see himself as God sees him. Paul saw himself as the chief of sinners. He saw himself little in the sight of God. He had no confidence in his flesh. His confidence was in, in Jesus Christ himself and the confidence in the work that Christ did, that Christ would finish that work. Paul would say, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ in me. See, he didn't have this great image of himself. He was the apostle. He wasn't puffed up about it. But he recognized he needed Christ. And he needed him daily. It's interesting, though, his Hebrew name was Saul. It means asked for. Interesting. He wanted to know God. He sincerely thought he was serving God, and on that road to Damascus, he, he probably would have been praying, God, I, I want to know you more. I want to do your will. And God struck him down with that bright light and opened up his heart that he would recognize that he was going against the goats, going against God's will. Sincere, he thought he was, but sincerely wrong, wanting to honor God, asking God, help me see the truth that will set me free. God set him free that he would then be the apostle that would write the most of the New Testament. Example to you, an example to me. 
He was a man that could have thought a lot of himself. He was born in Tarsus. He was a citizen. It's interesting. He he was a scholarly man, well-read man. But he saw himself as God saw him. And he just wanted to honor God. He's born in a town called Tarsus, probably about the same time that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. It's interesting, though. You notice that in the verse 1 that Paul referred to himself as apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior. According means, uh, really means after the manner. It means that Paul was chosen by Christ Jesus to be apostle. That apostleship was not due to his own choices, but God had chosen him. Chosen him. Before the foundation of the world to prepare good works for him, that he would be apostle. That he would lead people to Christ. That he would be evangelized. That he would be persecuted for righteousness. That he would lay down his life for a, a savior. See, the apostle was not due to his own choice. But notice again, the word commandment. The word commandment means, speaks of authority. And the reference here will, it, it is to a will or a decree. The word commandment here emphasizes the fact that what has happened is definite. See, Paul had received his direct order from God for his ministry. See, each of us here have a calling. Each of us have a, a ministry. We're all the function is, is, is either missionaries, and if you're not a missionary, you're the mission field. You need to be saved. But we're all given a, a ministry. Do you know what your ministry is? Well, I'm going to tell you one thing it is, is, is to be conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. But it's to minister the ministry of reconciliation. Those around you that are broken, those that are hurting, those are alcoholics and drug addicts and broken marriages and those running from God. We have this ministry of reconciliation, bringing him to the king that they might know him and be reconciled to God just as once you and I were separated. We were enemies of God. To bring the message of reconciliation to the world. We find that in the Great Commission. We find that in all the Gospels in one form of that. But Paul received those direct orders. And you have too. God's spoken to your heart and either you're going to listen and respond or you'll suppress that truth. I believe that every person knows what they're called to do. God puts it in their heart and they begin to prepare themselves. They begin to move in that direction. And at that right moment, God puts them in that place. And that's when you find that fulfillment because you're right in the middle of God's will. You'll notice again that Paul said that he was called by God our Savior. And Christ Jesus, Paul's reference to God the Savior and Christ Jesus speaks of the deity of Christ. The reference to to God as our Savior speaks of the fact that God is that source of deliverance from sin. He's delivered us from the power of sin. He's saved us from ourselves and still working as he's given us the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin and empowers us and directs us when we choose to listen to him. 
God's plan for salvation was executed by, notice, Christ Jesus. God's our Savior because he, he, he wants us to be saved. He, he's the one that takes that initiative. He initiates that. He was knocking on your door. The Holy Spirit was working, convicting you of your sin. Just as John the Baptist came and he, he was preparing the way. He was baptizing people at the baptism of repentance, preparing the way, recognizing their sinfulness. That's the same work the Holy Spirit does is revealing to you your sinfulness and a need of a Savior. It's the Spirit of Jesus that was already working, working in this world with you, alongside you, until that moment that you came into that kingdom and then he came in your life. God's plan of salvation was executed by, yes, Christ Jesus. He, again, is, wants you to be saved. He's the initiator. And he gave himself upon the cross to pay the price we could not pay. Look again in verse 1. Christ Jesus, who is our hope. See, Paul was assuring Timothy that Christ Jesus is the only hope of salvation. There's one way. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. There's no way the Father but through him. One way through Christ Jesus. Jesus is the door. He's the one that we go through enter in salvation. He says he stands at the door and knocks. If anyone opened the door... He comes in and sups with them. He's the only hope of getting to heaven. See, Christ Jesus is that solution to all the future problems with sin and eternal security. Because of the work of Christ in the past, we now have that, that hope of the future. That, that word hope speaks of a anticipation with pleasure. I've done a funeral many times, and one of the things I find with Christians when, when we do a funeral, that focus on hope becomes so real. When they see that loved one who is a believer, they know to be absent, the body is to be present with the Lord, but they also know, and they have this anticipation, this excitement that one day I'll go and see my family member again. I'll go be with the king I'll go be in a world where there is no sin and no pain. I'll be with the one who gave himself for me. That anticipation is with pleasure, with excitement. It's a longing. Again, that references to a desire of something that is it's good, an expectation of receiving it. It means that we know that one day, without a doubt, that will be with the king. It's not maybe. It's not hoping that that will be. It's that assurance, that peace. The hope is a positive expectation of that eternal life. That expectation of eternal life is only due to Jesus Christ. See, he's the one that's made it possible. Since Christ really is our hope, it, it, it makes it certain in that fulfillment in, in God's plan that's in Christ. Our life is in Christ. As Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ 
lives in me. Our identity is in Christ, not in ourselves, but it's in Christ. So the verse, one, uh, the hope is the, the picture of Christ being our trust, trusted confidently. You know, I, I have this confidence in him that he's able to keep you and me until that day. That we're his workmanship, Ephesians says, that he will finish the work in you and me. That when he says he's going to prepare a place, if we're not so, he wouldn't have told you. He's, he's coming back for us. That We have that hope, that assurance. It's constantly filled with expectation. I think as we grow in that love and grace of Jesus Christ, that, that we have this anticipation, maybe today's the day. Lord, this would be a good day. I long to be with you. We talk about the story of Enoch when he walked with God for 300 years. And then he wasn't. The idea that he was, that God had said to him, hey, look, Enoch, you're closer to my home today than yours. Come be with me. And God will say one day, come be with me. Come home. You, you fulfilled that purpose. You've completed that walk. Today is the day that you come home. I have many friends that long for that, not just because they're old, because they just long to be with the one that loved them so very much. We can have that hope in Christ Jesus because he's the goodness. His mercy can be relied upon. His promises will never fail. See, his mercies are new every morning. A desire for, for those spiritual blessings. In fact, he writes again to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God, our Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Of all the members of Paul's circle, there, there's none with whom he formed a closer mutual attachment than with Timothy. And four of these, Timothy's name is the only one to be associated with Paul in his own way. See, this letter was addressed to Timothy, Paul's true child of the faith. See, this is an expression of Paul's love for Timothy, my, my true child in the faith. And as I mentioned when beginning, Paul had this special relationship, this special love with Timothy and, and Titus both, and, and he expresses that love. See, love is that mark of a Christian. It, it, people should know that they're loved, and it's the love of God that we love people with. Again, this, this is expression of Paul's love for Timothy. And, and Timothy was from Lystra, if you remember, a, a province of, of Galatia. Now, his name means one who honors God. And certainly, when you look at the life of Timothy, Timothy's life was one that honored God. I believe that's true of every one of you here today. You really want to honor God. You want to glorify God. You want to magnify his name. You want people to know God through your life, through the works that you do, through the way that you love your wife and love your kids. Again, Timothy 
grew up in a home with a father who was a, a Greek, a Gentile, you might say, in Acts 16. And his mother was Jewish. His mother Eunice and grandmother Lois were, they were women of faith. They were devoted to God. And Timothy was saved on Paul's second missionary journey. And although circumcision was not necessary for salvation, Paul had circumcised Timothy to keep down any confusion among the Jews. See, this would increase Timothy's usefulness as Paul's assistant, and Timothy became Paul's constant companion. Timothy was held in such high honor in in Lystra and Iconium, and Paul desired to to take him along as a, a traveling companion. He was useful, and he desired to be used by God. And Timothy had played this prominent role in the remainder of the second missionary journey, and Paul was forced to leave Brea because of the uproar started because of the Jews in Thessalonica. It's there that we saw Silas and Timothy. They were left behind to strengthen the work in Macedonia. And that's important to, to see that he was, could leave these two men, Silas and Timothy. They were men that were pillars of the faith, men that were willing to, to be steadfast, to strengthen that work in Macedonia. After they rejoined Paul in Athens, Paul sent Timothy back to the believers in Thessalonica to establish them, to encourage them to maintain that faith. Here in verse 2, Paul is called Timothy his true son. It's interesting, the, the word true means legitimate. It says that Timothy was genuine. He was a the real thing. He wasn't counterfeit. He wasn't a hypocrite. No, he was the kind of person that Paul could trust so much that he could send Timothy anywhere because he knew Timothy would go. He's willing to, to do whatever God would call him to do. Out of all these things Paul wanted Timothy, the things that he wanted most were that he would experience the grace and the mercy and the peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The grace, though, was unearned. It's undeserved favor of God. See, grace says that God owes nothing but gives us everything. Look with me on the screen, John 1, verses 16 and 17. For of his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized, notice, through Jesus Christ. See, another blessing that Paul wanted for Timothy was mercy. Mercy, it speaks of God's loving kindness. It also speaks of God's steadfastness and love. As I've already mentioned, again, in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says this, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, the, the word mercy also means to be gentle, to, to be long-suffering. It means to pity or to have compassion. It suggests softness. Mercy means to to be warm. 
Paul wanted Timothy to receive this mercy of God. Now, if this is what God is to be merciful, it means, too, we are to be like him, gentle, long-suffering. It means to have, we should be people that have pity and compassion upon others. It means our lives should be warm and, and bring healing to people's lives. That we should be a picture of mercy. Not judgmental, not condemning. Another spiritual blessing Paul wanted to, to receive was peace. Peace given through the blood of Jesus Christ. Look with me at Isaiah 26. In the steadfast of the mind, you will keep a perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust the Lord forever. For God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. Notice what Jesus said in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. God gives his peace to each and every believer. See, this peace is something that the world doesn't know. It's peace not as the world. Peace of the world is a, is a false peace. It's deceiving peace. It's a temporary peace. But a peace from the Lord is a peace in the midst of a storm, knowing God's in control, knowing that God is the one that will bring us through. He's the one that will sustain us. The bottom line is peace comes when we stay focused upon Jesus and the work that he has assigned to our hearts and our hands. Peace comes when we're in the middle of his will. In fact, Philippians 4, 7 says this, And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts, your minds, in Christ Jesus. Notice again, it's a peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. We, we can't understand in this life, but only when you're in the middle of his will. It guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The spiritual blessings of Paul uh, wanted for Timothy were, were things that only God and Christ could give. I'd like to share an illustration September 6, 1995, Cal Ripton Jr. broke the baseball record that may believed would never be broken. Lou Gehrig, the Iron Man, feat of playing in 2,131 consecutive games. Ripton gives much of the credit for his accomplishments to the example and the teaching of his father, Cal Ripton Sr., who played minor league baseball, coached and managed the Orioles. Well, it was during the 1996 season, Ripton Sr. was inducted into the Orioles Hall of Fame. And after he gave acceptance speech, the son came to the microphone, an emotional moment recalled in his book, The Only Way I Know. It was difficult. I wasn't certain I could say what I wanted about my father and what he means to me. So I told a little story about my two children, Rachel, six at the time, and Ryan, three, they had been bickering for weeks, and I explained how one day I heard Rachel taunt Ryan, you're just trying to be like Daddy. After a few moments of indecision, I asked Rachel, what's wrong with trying to 
be like Daddy. And when I finished telling the story, I looked at my father and I added, that's what I always tried to do. What could be more right than to try and be like your Heavenly Father? See, it brings true and lasting greatness. It's a great deal better to live a holy life than to talk about it. We're told to let our light shine. And if it does, we won't need to tell anybody it does. The light will be its own witness. Lighthouses don't ring bells. The fire cannon to call attention to the shining. It just shines. The historian J.C. Ryle listed seven characteristics of messengers during the the great awakening in the 18th century who just live as they believe for Christ. They taught the supremacy of the Holy Scripture. That meant they needed to know it before they could teach it. They preached the total corruption of the human nature, that depravity of man we talk about. Thirdly, they taught that Christ's death upon the cross was the only satisfaction for men's sin. It was sufficient. Fourth, they preached the doctrine of justification by faith, by simply trusting and putting our faith in Jesus Christ that we can have that right standing. He comes in our life and changes us. They taught the universal necessity of a heart conversion or a new creation by the Holy Spirit, meaning that they were born again. Unless a person is born again, he will not enter the kingdom of God. They spoke of God's eternal hatred against sin and God's love for sinners. The balance that we need to strive for. They preached that there was an inseparable connection between true faith and personal holiness. See, when a person has faith in God, it will be seen in their life in a personal holiness. They never allow the, the moment of any church membership or religious profession. <laughs> it was not proof, but it was the godly life. In fact, the Wakeners continually cried out, no fruit, no grace. Meaning again, if they've never experienced the grace of God, there's going to be no evidence of fruit in their life. But if there's a fruit, if there's a changed life, there's the evidence that you've experienced that grace. See, Jonathan Edwards believed that every experience of God could be counterfeited except for those with the insight into his holiness. See, that insight, the holiness of God will always produce a lifestyle change, a lifestyle change of repentance. When one enters upon the the highway called holiness, it does not mean he is perfect. It simply means he's walking down that straight and narrow path that leads to life. That God will finish that work in him. See, repentance means a change of heart, a change of mind. And throughout that Christian life, We should be continually changed, continually conformed all into the image of Jesus Christ. See, as we look at this book, this is Paul's desire to help form godliness in the heart of of Timothy, 
and Titus, the pastors that would come, the importance of walking in holiness and godliness and walking in sound doctrine, passing it on to that next generation, looking for faithful men to entrust it, men, godly men that would be those leaders that would lead the sheep in all truth, lead them in the life, lead them in the presence of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word, your timeless word. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives and you will continue to do. In Jesus' name, amen.